Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. The book of Daniel is about conflict. Conflict between the people of God and the people of the world. Daniel 1.1 sets the time and place. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And it goes on to tell how the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were then forcibly removed from their homes in Israel and brought to the land of Babylon where they were held in captivity. Then Nebuchadnezzar instructed his officials to select the brightest and healthiest young men from among the Jewish captives and make them servants in the king's palace. Daniel was one of those young men who were selected for this purpose. And so were three other young Jewish men who were given Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The lives of these four young Jewish men um, became characterized by conflict. Uh, They began to experience the conflict of worldviews. Living in Babylon is challenging for the person who's committed to serving God. So when you read through these early chapters of Daniel, understand that you're reading about the clash of worldviews more than anything else. You're reading about the clash of worldviews between the people of God and the people of the world who are hostile against the people of God. But don't think that this clash is only limited to people living in Babylon. God's people experience the same clash of worldviews in every pagan society. For example, in chapter 7, Daniel had a vision of four beasts. Uh, These four beasts represent four kingdoms that would rule the world, and we understand those kingdoms to be the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Over the next 600 years, those were the kingdoms that rose to be global superpowers. And each of these four kingdoms was hostile to the people of God. In other words, each of these four kingdoms attempted to impose a worldview that was contrary to the biblical worldview that God's people uh, are committed to upholding. In other words, they're trying to impose a a non-biblical, non-God-honoring worldview onto God's people. For example, in Daniel 7.25, we read that the fourth beast speaks pompous words against the Most High and wears out the saints of the Most High. He wears them out, it says in the in Daniel 7.25. And this is revealing something about the tactic that the world, one of the tactics that the world uses. While in open rebellion to God, the world keeps pushing its wicked agenda with such dogged persistence that the saints of God are prone to being worn out. Scripture, history, our own personal experience testify to this truth. The world is persistent at pressuring us to conform to its values and this persistence is intended to wear us out. They know that we're going to resist their sinful advances, but they also know that if they keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, then they 
we, their opposition, we will eventually grow weary. And so their strategy is to advance their agenda by inches. Rather than trying to take the whole nine yards in one fell swoop, they're content to take an incremental approach because the incremental approach is a prolonged series of small battles which seem less important and seem less significant to casual Christians, and it requires conscientious Christians to sustain a prolonged defense. And the world knows that prolonged defenses are difficult to sustain. And so they just keep plugging away. When one bill is defeated, they introduce another, and another, and another, until they eventually get the legislation they want. And then they introduce another bill, which pushes their agenda even further. And when that bill eventually gets passed, they, they introduce another bill that pushes their agenda just a little bit further. And the cycle continues without end. It's designed, brothers and sisters, to wear you out. It's designed to make you cave in and to give up. Yet we don't have the option of giving up. Giving up would be losing our saltiness. And Jesus said that if the salt loses its saltiness, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So how is a Christian supposed to handle these situations? How is the Christian supposed to respond when people with an unbiblical worldview are trying to thrust their rules and regulations upon us? I submit to you that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego provide us with an excellent example of how we are to handle these, these kinds of situations. Let's take a closer look at our sermon text from Daniel 3. Verse one says that Nebuchadnezzar built a huge gold image and placed it in the plain of Dura. Now we're not told what the image was of, but we can presume it was of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it was common practice amongst ancient pagan kings to make images of themselves and then force their subjects to bow down and worship those images. So that would be consistent with um, you know, what, what was normal in those days. Moreover, verse one says that the image Nebuchadnezzar created was 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, which means it was about 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. And this proportion of height to width is consistent with a, a statue of a standing person. Again, lending to the conclusion that this was indeed an image of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we're also told not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times in our sermon text that the image was made of gold. Why is that relevant? Well, if you go back uh, to chapter uh, two and you read about the dream Nebuchadnezzar had, he dreamt about a different image. Before building this gold image, he had a dream of a different image. That image had a head of gold its chest and arms were made of silver, its belly and thighs were made of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. And when Daniel interpreted that dream for Nebuchadnezzar, he told him that he, Nebuchadnezzar, was the head of gold. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heavens has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory, 
And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Hearing this and being puffed up in his own pride, Nebuchadnezzar determined to make a 90-foot statue of himself and cover it with gold. He is, after all, the head of gold. And then he set this image up in the plain of Dura. Now, geographers and biblical historians tell us that the plain of Dura was positioned between two mountain ranges. Uh, These mountain ranges would have created something like a large-scale amphitheater with the image sitting in the middle. People from miles away would be able to see this image. And because it was covered in gold, the sun would sparkle and glisten off of this massive image in a very impressive manner, perhaps much like the, uh, the sun sparkled and glistened off of the royal apparel that Herod wore when he made his public appearance in Caesarea. And if you're trying to picture in your mind what this would look like, think about uh, what it would look like to have a 90-foot Oscar award standing between Hollywood Hills and Beverly Hills. And imagine what it would look like if the Academy Awards ceremony was held in the presence of this massive Oscar award. The event would be filled with a lot of pomp and circumstance, you can be sure of that. The red carpet would be rolled out. The rich and the famous would get out of their limousines and make their special appearance. There would be a lot of glitz and glamour and, of course, vanity. Uh, There would be an orchestra to strike up music at the appropriate times. That's pretty much what's described in verses 2 through 5 of our sermon text. Nebuchadnezzar threw a party for the dedication of the image he set up. He summoned all the rich and powerful people to be there, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, the officials of the provinces. And verse three says that all these people gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And there was an orchestra there. Verse five describes a symphony of uh, horns and flutes and harps and lyres and psalteries playing all kinds of music. And there was a master of ceremonies at this dedication party. According to verses four through six, a herald instructed everybody to fall down and worship the image whenever they heard the orchestra begin to play music. And this wasn't a suggestion, this was a command. It was a command directly from Nebuchadnezzar. And the herald went on to say that anybody who does not fall down and worship will be cast immediately into the fiery furnace. So very much like the Academy Awards, All the powerful and influential people were at this special dedication party. And by the world's standards, this must have been a magnificent spectacle. The sheer magnitude of it all, the grandeur of the image, the exclusivity of the guest list, the setting, the pageantry, the full orchestra of musical instruments. It was an exceedingly impressive display of opulence. The world is very good at promoting this kind of vanity. And many people are enthralled with it. Many people actually search for it and pursue it. 
They love uh, the splendor. They love the pageantry. They love to get a glimpse of the rich and famous. They love to see what they're wearing or find out who's on the red carpet with them. If it were not so, then there wouldn't be, we wouldn't have all the paparazzi and tabloid magazines that we currently have. And if it were not so, then we wouldn't have so many YouTube channels and television programs dedicated to celebrity and entertainment news. Even Christians get caught up in this vanity. Even Christians who should know better, Christians who have read Ecclesiastes 2, who have been warned that all this is a, just a grasping for the wind. Even they get caught up in this vanity. Why? Because the world does such an impressive job at making it look attractive. In, in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot statue was really nothing more than 90 feet of bricks made of mud, bricks baked of mud, covered with a thin veneer of gold to make it look pretty. That's what the entertainment industry is today. It's the baked mud of pride, of sensuality, of fleeting beauty, of immorality, of gossip, of envy, of discontent people posturing to be something that they're not. And all of this is covered over with a pretty veneer of gold so that people, even Christians, might be attracted to it. It's not a stretch to say that the entertainment industry has become an idol for some people, even for some Christians. Some Christians know more about the Kardashians than they do the sons of Jacob. Some Christians can tell you who wrote the film score for Indiana Jones, but they can't tell you who wrote Lamentations. They can list in order the names of every actor who played James Bond, but they cannot list each of the Ten Commandments. They know exactly how many episodes are in the Star Wars series, but they don't know how many Pauline epistles are in the New Testament. And some Christians spend more time sitting in a movie theater than they do sitting under the preaching of God's Word. What was happening in the plain of Dura is that thousands of people were changing the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made in the likeness of corruptible man. In other words, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they were worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Verse 7 of our sermon text says, So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations and languages, fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Similar forms of idolatry exist in our society, brothers and sisters. Similar forms of idolatry exist. They're disguised with glitter and glamour, they appeal to our carnal curiosities because rich and famous people are involved. Our inquiring minds want to know. So we subscribe to the YouTube channel and we hit the notification button so that we can be alerted the second our favorite celebrity exchanges her old boyfriend for a new boyfriend. But this is all vanity. It's all vanity, brothers and sisters. There is nothing new under the sun. 
the vanity that was happening in the plain of Dura two and a half millennia ago is the same vanity that's happening today. Just as they worship the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, people today are worshiping the golden Oscar, the golden screen, the golden globe, and the gold star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Do you remember that final scene in Thelma and Louise? how they drove their car off the edge of the Grand Canyon? Do you remember how at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader revealed that he is Luke Skywalker's father? Do you remember the, the spinning top at the end of Inception? Leonardo DiCaprio's character spun the top just to check to see if he's in reality or still in a dream. But then the movie ends before you can see whether the top stops spinning. Endings are memorable. Do you remember how the first epistle of John ends? Do you remember the last, very last verse of the first epistle of John, which is a command but also functions as a warning? It reads, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Coming back to our sermon text, not everybody in the plain of Dura fell down to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Verse eight informs us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down before that image. And this is because they were men of faith. Uh, faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. They knew that God had strictly prohibited the making of images and the bowing down of images, and the worship of images, and so they refused to do what their civil leaders had commanded them to do. It didn't matter to them how many people, uh, other people, were worshiping the image, because these three Jewish men, for them it was a matter of obedience to the Lord. This was a worldview issue. They understood, as Peter and John would later understand, that they must obey God rather than men. So when everybody else in the plain of Dura had dropped to their knees and bowed down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing tall. This was an impressive act of bravery because everybody in attendance could clearly see them standing there. It's one thing to take a stand for righteousness when nobody's watching, nobody can really see you, but it's how much more difficult is it to take a stand for righteousness when everybody can see you? That's what often makes it so difficult for us to remain faithful to God, right? The peer pressure, the social rejection, the threats of negative consequences. These three Jewish men were literally standing for righteousness in the midst of thousands of the most powerful and influential people in Babylon. And they knew exactly what the consequences of their actions would be. They had heard very clearly the king's decree that anybody who refused to worship the golden image would be thrown into the fiery furnace. But they chose to stand for righteousness anyways. When everybody's bowed down, they're standing straight. That's faith. That's courage. But realize the, 
The courage to stand when everybody else is bowing down was not a decision that they had made in the moment the orchestra began playing music. There's a larger context in which we need to assess this situation. The decision to obey God rather than men had been made much, much earlier for these three young Jewish men. Back in Daniel 1, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already taken a stand in regards to the king's meat and drink. They didn't want to defile themselves by eating the king's delicacies, even though it had been commanded of them. So they stood up for what they believed in. And having stood by faith in this smaller matter, God was preparing them for standing in this larger matter. So the impressive courage that we're reading about in chapter three was something that had already begun to be exercised back in chapter one. And this provides us with a a helpful insight for our you know, assessing our own lives. Uh, Strong faith and courage don't just normally develop overnight. Rather, faith and courage typically grow in strength and intensity through exercising our faith and courage. When we're faithful in the little things, the little things will lead to bigger things. And when we're faithful in the bigger things, they typically lead to even greater things. And so with each victory over the enemy of the world, we grow stronger and stronger in our ability to resist the world. And when we think of people who have made great stands of faith against the enemies of God, of course, we have the scriptures which give us all sorts of examples. But even, even in uh, post-New Testament history, we, we can think of men like Martin Luther, Luther had the world's most powerful ecclesiastical authority pressuring him to recant his faith in the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ Jesus alone. But he refused to recant. His courageous words spoken at the Imperial Diet of Worms are quoted in many history books. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. My my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Or we read Fox's Book of Martyrs and we have similar admiration for those Christians who suffer terrible abuses and martyrdom because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We read these accounts and we ask ourselves, Would I be able to do what they did? Would I be able to do what those martyrs did? Someday if I'm being threatened with martyrdom, will I have the courage to hold fast to my faith in Jesus Christ? Or will I give in and deny my Savior in order to preserve my physical life? The best indicator for how you'll respond in those big situations like that is to look at how you respond in the little situations of life that you're encountering today. If you take a stand for God in the little things, then it's reasonable to uh, conclude that you will take a stand for God in the big things. After all, this is what the Bible tells us, right? Jesus explains in Luke 16, verse 10, he who's faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And Jesus goes on to say, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So there's a direct correlation. If you want to know what 
you would do in much, look at what you do in little. So you're in school. A question on your science exam asks, how many years ago did the first forms of life appear on earth? You know the answer that they're looking for is 3.5 billion years ago, yet the Bible teaches that the first life forms were created around 6,000 years ago. So how are you going to answer this question? Are you gonna answer according to what the Bible says to be true? You know that if you do, your grade will suffer. You know that they're gonna mark it wrong. Do you have the courage to stand for the truth in this situation? Or are you willing, uh, and are you willing to suffer the consequences that may result from taking this stand? Or do you just give the answer you know that the school is looking for, even though that answer contradicts the truth of Scripture? It's just a little matter. Here's another situation. Your employer comes to you and says, there's been a change in the work schedule. Starting next week, I need you to come in on Sundays. You explain to your employer that Sunday is your Sabbath and you go to church on that day. He says, I know, I know, but I really need you. I need you on Sundays. You're just gonna have to learn to deal with it. What are you gonna do? Do you give your employer an ultimatum? Do you go back yet again to continue this conversation explaining that either you get Sundays off or you have to look for a new job? Or do you shrug your shoulders and say, there's nothing I can do about it. I just need to do what my boss is telling me to do. It's not a small matter. It's a little bit bigger matter. Are you going to take a stand for your faith? It's by standing firm in the little things that you'll build the faith and courage to stand firm in the big things. Before Martin Luther ever displayed the courage to oppose the Roman Catholic Church, he displayed the courage, uh, he, he, he displayed his courage to oppose a thousand smaller things. What was evident about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they were willing to stand for God in the big things. They were aware of the fact that they were in Babylon, but they were not of Babylon, which is to say they refused to allow their God-centered worldview to be brought into conformity with the Babylonian worldview, even under the threat of being thrown into the fiery furnace. And when the people who had a Babylonian worldview witnessed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego acting upon their God-centered worldview, the people reacted with hostility. Verse eight says that certain Chaldeans brought accusations against these three men. Uh, they spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar, reminding him of the command that he had made about throwing people into the fiery furnace. And then they said in verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the god, the gold image that you have set up. And verse 13 says that when Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he became furious. In rage and fury, he gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him. And Nebuchadnezzar wasn't exactly the kind of man that you wanted uh, to be furious toward you. Uh, he was an evil and wicked man. He did cruel and terrible things to those that he was furious with. For example, 
when he became angry with King Zedekiah, he made Zedekiah watch as he slaughtered his sons before his eyes. And then Nebuchadnezzar gouged out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing he was able to see was his sons being put to death. That's the kind of person Nebuchadnezzar was. So when uh, he heard that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had refused to, to worship the image, he summoned them to appear before him. And notice what Nebuchadnezzar actually said to them uh, when he began speaking to them. Look at verse 14. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good! But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar's goal is to have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego conform to the Babylonian worldview. That's the real issue here. If you go back to verse six and reread the decree that was spoken by the king's herald, it's very clear that whoever does not fall down and worship the image shall be cast immediately, note the word immediately, shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace, immediately. There's no trial, there's no opportunity for an appeal or an explanation. Whoever does not fall down and worship the image shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Yet when Nebuchadnezzar hears that these three Jewish men refuse to fall down and worship the image, he calls them in and gives them a second chance. A second chance at what? A second chance to conform to the Babylonian worldview. This is because the enemies of God have a stronger desire to see God's people cave in under pressure than to be martyred for their faith. The enemies of God have a stronger desire to see God's people cave in under pressure than to be martyred for their faith. The world is always trying to bring the people of God into conformity to its own standards, its own values, its own ideologies. The world is always trying to pressure Christians to abandon their devotion to God. And the world rejoices when people who once professed Christ turn to embrace any worldview other than the Christian worldview. It doesn't matter whether the apostate becomes a, an atheist or an agnostic or a Buddhist or a Hindu, just so long as they're not a Christian. This is because the world is at enmity with Christ. And because it hates Christ, it hates those who belong to Christ. Jesus describes this in John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The context, the, the contest and the conflict that's being played out in our sermon text is not about, um, it's not a civil contest between a king and his disobedient subjects. It's a spiritual context, contest. It's a contest of worldviews. To borrow terminology from Ephesians 6, it's 
not a contest between flesh and blood. It's a contest between principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts of wickedness who are at war with the triune God of the Bible. If there was any doubt that this is the case, then one only needs to notice Nebuchadnezzar's taunt at the end of verse 15. He says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is a conflict of worldviews. And I love how these three young Jewish men answered this furious and powerful king. They didn't need time to think it over. They didn't need to use a lifeline or call a friend. They immediately responded by saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If, this is, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. This answer left no doubt in Nebuchadnezzar's mind as to what the commitment of these three young men was. And this answer made Nebuchadnezzar even more furious than he already was. Verse 19 says that he was full of fury and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you ever experienced this type of reaction where you, you say something, uh, you're talking with somebody or even in the presence of other people and you say something about your Christian faith or about the love of God or about the atoning work of Jesus Christ or whatever it is you say and all of a sudden you notice a, a visible uh, change in the expression on the other person's face. You sense strong opposition to what you had just said based upon the reaction on that person's face. You suddenly realize that this person is hostile towards you. They don't need to say it, they're showing it. That's what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hearing that they wouldn't adopt the Babylonian worldview, Nebuchadnezzar's anger drove him to command that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than it was normally heated. But then the most astonishing thing happened. As these three young men were thrown into the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar could see four men walking around. Three of them were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He could, he could, he could uh, recognize them. But then he says, the form of the fourth was of the Son of God, he says in verse 25. This is the, you know, an unmistakable reference to Jesus Christ. 550 years before Jesus was miraculously conceived in the virgin's womb, he appeared in the form of the Son of God walking and talking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fiery furnace. Verse 24 says that Nebuchadnezzar was astonished by this. He rose in haste and he said to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Verse 26 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar called to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they came out of the midst of the fire. Not a hair in their head was burned. There was not a single blister on their skin. Their garments were 
unaffected by the fire. There, there wasn't even the smell of fire on them. They had been completely protected by the Lord Jesus Christ through the entire ordeal. The only thing that burned were the, the cords that had bound them and the mighty men who threw them into the fiery furnace. And this is literally what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is not a myth. This is not a legend. This is not a fairy tale. This is truth. This is fact. This is history. So what do we learn from this account? We learn that the world is intent on having us conform to its values. Moreover, the world exerts persistent pressure for us to conform. This is intentional. It's designed to break us down by wearing us out. And all the while, as the world is exerting this pressure, it's telling us that if we would just lighten up a little and conform to its ways, then life will be so much easier for us. But if we remain stubborn and refuse to conform, then the consequences are going to be very severe. That's the essence of what Nebuchadnezzar said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teach us is that to accept those severe consequences is the righteous option in those cases. Obedience to God takes priority over everything else. And the, the God that you serve, brothers and sisters, is able to deliver you from whatever fiery furnace this world may have in store for you. Now you probably notice that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were first responding to Nebuchadnezzar, they made a conditional statement. They said with all confidence that their God is able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. But then they said, even if God does not deliver them, they would rather die than to bow down and worship the gold image. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not having second thoughts here. This is not a, um, a crisis of their faith. They are, because they don't know the secret will of God for their life. They don't know with all certainty whether he plans to deliver them under these circumstances or have them martyred under these circumstances. I mentioned Fox's book of martyrs earlier. All you need to do is open that book to any page and you'll read of people who had just as strong a faith in the Lord as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, but God chose not to deliver them from their fiery furnace, from the aggressions of their enemies. So those people died. They were martyred for their faith. Yet they had the same confidence in God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. How do we understand that? Is that a failure on God's part? Is that a victory for the world that they actually killed these people who held on to their faith in Christ? Not at all. Not at all. Let me give you four reasons why. First, remember that the, the world's goal is to make us conform to their worldview. In other words, they want us to abandon our faith in Jesus Christ. And when Christians demonstrate a strong resolve not to conform to the world's demands, that's when the world resorts to killing. But that's not a victory for the world. It's, it's, that's actually a defeat 
for the world. It's an admission of their own failure because they tried everything they could to make the Christian deny his faith, but to no avail. So out of anger and frustration and fury, they resort to violence. Second reason, we need to remember that Jesus said, uh, we, we need to remember what Jesus said about this very situation in Matthew 10, 28. He said, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the point Jesus was making here is that the most harmful thing the world can possibly do to you is take away your physical life. But they cannot take away your spiritual life. What happens, uh, whatever happens after a man dies is not determined by the world, it's determined by God. Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed for men to die once, and then what? Then comes the judgment. The judgment, brothers and sisters. We learn from Revelation 2 verse 10 and 20 verse 4 that those who are martyred for their faith receive the crown of life. They receive the crown of life. And they live and reign with Christ. That's not a bad thing. So, brothers and sisters, if the God-haters of this world ever put you to death because of your faith in Jesus, because you won't deny your faith in Jesus, because you won't conform to the ways of the world, all they've really done is accelerated your entrance into heaven. For, for the Christian to die is gain. Third reason. I think I said there's gonna be four reasons, but there's three. The third reason is that God is glorified when he delivers the, his saints from martyrdom, and he is glorified when he does not deliver his saints from martyrdom. And this is the point that's made at the end of Hebrews 11. Several examples are listed of people who God delivered from danger. Amongst them is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then the author uh, to the Hebrews goes on to describe how some were tortured, some were falsely tried and scourged, some saints ended up in chains and imprisonment, some were stoned to death, some were sawn in two, some were slain with a sword, Some wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And what does the author to the Hebrews say about these people who were not delivered from their earthly fiery trials? He says that they have obtained a good testimony through faith. They have obtained a good testimony through faith. In other words, their willingness to suffer persecution and martyrdom is a good testimony that gives glory to God. And this is why they appear in Hebrews 11 as examples of people who have lived by faith. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, it says at the end of Hebrews 11. And this is why John Fox wrote a book about martyrs, so that the testimony of ordinary Christians being martyred for their faith will continue to give glory to God for generation after generation. So how do we as Christians persevere in truth when the world is so strongly opposed to us? How do we persevere to the end when the world's goal 
is to break us down through persistent assaults against our faith. We do so by fearing the Lord and not fearing man. We do so by fearing the Lord and not fearing man. Understand that fear always leads to conformity. Fear always leads to conformity. Whoever you fear, that's who you will conform to. So if you fear man, then you'll conform to the will of man. But if you fear the Lord, then you will conform to the will of the Lord. So the question that each one of us has to ask ourselves, not just today, but, but repetitively, ongoing, throughout our Christian walk, is who do we fear? Who do you fear? Who do I fear? Do you fear the Lord? Do you revere him? Because that's what it's talking about. Do you worship him? Do you stand in awe of his majesty? If so, then you're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Your fear of the Lord gives you the resolve to stand firm upon the promises of God. You will take a stand for your faith, both in the small things as well as the big things. But if you fear man, then you've probably already conformed to the will of man in many areas of your life. Where this is true, you need to recognize this and you need to repent. Pray to the Lord that he'll distribute his loving grace to you. Pray that he'll give you the faith necessary to stand firm for him in the little things and the big things. And pray that he will build up you and strengthen you to stand firm against the persistent assaults of this world. Because if not by his grace, not one of us would stand. Amen, and let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.